Okay. Are we doing it live? Let's do it live, man. We're doing it live. Awesome. We are good to go. That is, uh, that's, that's your cue, by the way, uh, to know that we are now recording. And everything you say can and will be used against you um, in perpetuity on the internet because the internet's permanent. So, um, you know, awesome. with, with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and start this show in, a, in the most unconventional methods. And uh, so, welcome to the Hot Out. I am one of your hosts. I'm Brian Carpenter. And with me, I have my bestest friend in the whole wide world. Who's that? Two best friends that anyone can have? The best best friend that anybody can have. So, tell me, <laughs> tell everybody who my best friend is. Brent Piotti. That's right. And um, so, we're going to have another exciting show. This one is, you know, sometimes we have shows that are like, you know, uh, we, we put them out because we got the guest and look, it's when we got the guest. And sometimes we have shows and it's about a point in time. Not really, it's, but it's still timeless. It's just about that kind of frame of time. And this is one of those frames of time. And so the goal of this show is to discuss security and specifically security in a cloud. We're going to talk a little GDPR, software as a service, and, you know, kind of all these things that consume our lives and how security plays into that. And so, we, you know, Brett and I, we do this every single time. We, we've now done this for like 73 or 74 times. We brought an expert on. And so with us, uh, we have none other than Brian Rutledge. Brian, welcome to the Hot Out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You're welcome. And so, Brian, you know, we, we like to talk about who you are and, and why you're here. And so what we have you right now is the principal security engineer for spanning cloud apps. Is that... Uh, is your is your LinkedIn accurate? Yes, it is. That is my current occupation. Awesome. So tell Glad us what to be that, here too. Yeah, and tell us what that uh, tell us what that means. What is what does being the security engineer for spanning mean day to day? So previously to my arrival here, they they basically had one of their vice presidents that was kind of doing you know the jack of all trades thing, and and they and we start and they started to grow, and they they realized they were going to. Um, divest from Dell EMC. So they they felt like the time was right for them to go ahead and and uh, have someone totally dedicated to all of their security initiatives and driving compliance audits and all that fun stuff. So I came on board in April when we um, when we uh, separated from Dell EMC. Um, as I stated before, that's pretty much my entire existence is driving security and compliance audits. I I go out and I research new certifications and audits depending on what our customers are looking for uh, or, you know, any kind of new market type things like FedRAMP or something like that we're interested in moving into. So that's kind of some of the stuff I'm doing right now. I I also get on calls and um, with our customers and new clients and, and uh, you know, personally advocate for our compliance and how we do things here from a security perspective and compliance perspective here at Spanning. And of, I'm also trying to evangelize the concept of cybersecurity here and get my users, which, uh, you know, they're always the, the, the typical um, doorway into any organization's security posture. I try to get uh, everybody here on the same page and aware of cybersecurity and, uh, actually enjoying it or not being afraid of it. I'm not afraid of cybersecurity, by the way, I'm excited about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think about it every day and that's, you know, uh, uh, the irony of that is 
it's October, and this is actually thank you to our friends. This is a you know again spo- not sponsored, but a plug by the Department of Homeland Security. Your close and personal friends. This is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, which is why this was a little timely. And so, you know, awareness is part of this, right? I've seen even in my own organization, we had a little, uh, uh, you know, kind of education uh, push through and everybody had to take some tests. And of course, we all grumble about it because we're like, duh, we know not to click that link. But it's, it's really more than that. So, you know, the, the evangelism <laughs> part that you're doing is really important. Can you, can you tell us about, you know, kind of the evangelism? What, what's your focus there? And Kind of, we're going to get into some things that you've done, but what, what are you kind of trying to do as you evangelize? Where are you, where are you focused? Because it's a broad range. Yeah, it's a really broad range. Um, I think right now my focus is it's, – it's funny that you brought up the whole uh, taking the required tests and stuff like that. I, I just – I'm completing a, a push to get everybody to get you know, their required uh, annual training done for that. Um, I had to come up with that too, which was interesting. Uh, but my focus really right now is the whole social engineering uh, aspect of it because I feel like that is one of the biggest things in the news right now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in every headline, it seems like, when it comes to, you know, either ransomware phishing or, or something like that. It all has something to do with, you know, targeting a specific person and how they interact on 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 the internet or even you know at home or uh you know answering telephone calls here or watching the door to make sure nobody's you know piggybacking on the way in it's just it's these little things that i think a lot of we hear these terms but i don't know if we're uh taking them to heart as much and that's my evangelism and how it goes i'm trying to you know, not be too intrusive, but I'm trying to get everybody aware of things that are going on. And and so just, you know, since you brought up piggybacking, that's not like where Brent, I jump on Brent's back and he walks me down the beach <laughs> at sunset. That's not what piggybacking is, right? That's something different. Barefoot. Barefoot. Yeah, it's barefoot and it's and it's you know closeness. No, <laughs> no, but um, yeah, piggybacking is is following someone in that who doesn't belong and um. We, you know, our office in particular, we always have, you know, people coming in because we, we get taken really good care of here by our people management um, team. And so we always have people coming in our office that are bringing us food or, you know, or, or, or beer or something fun. And we always and I and I want people to ask questions. I want them to, you know, not be, you know, mean about it, but I want them to say, hey, you know, who are you? Do you, are you here to meet someone or, or whatever? And so I think those are really good concepts to instill in people um, at a basic level. From an, from an executive perspective within your organization, Brian, who do, you, who do you report to? Who's like listening to you when you're kind of beating the drum of security and, and people are uh, misbehaving? Well, I'm very, very lucky here because my my direct manager slash boss is our SVP of operations, um, Michael Pav. He's a, a great, great guy. Very, he actually maintained the security and compliance role uh, previous to that. Um, but he um, is, you know, I have the CEO's ear. I have everybody's attention. So I'm definitely very well supported. Okay. Very cool. Well, so look, you didn't just land in this job and say, Hey, Brian, you're going to be our security dude. 
seems like you've been doing this a while, at least according to LinkedIn. So tell us about your background and, and what got you interested in security. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to go back somewhat far and maybe there's some jokes in here. I don't know, but, love jokes. <laughs> but I was, love pre- those. yeah, we love jokes. Uh, well, more directed at me. Um, I was, I started out really kind of in the security realm back when I was a Navy submariner. Um, I was on a special projects boat, um, for six years. Uh, I then proceeded to go to school after that. Um, where I actually got business degrees, um, graduate and undergraduate, which really doesn't make sense, but that's kind of what happened. Uh, then I came back and, and, uh, and ended up at MCI and Verizon after they purchased them, um, became a, uh, certified information system security professional, CISSP there. Um, yep. And everybody loves those guys. And uh, really just I was in the compl- I was on a compliance team there and I realized that you know someday I would love to be a CISO or maybe something better. And so uh, I, I moved on to Trustwave where I was a payment card industry PCI assessor and learned about um, going into other companies and and really delving into their, uh, you know, the myriad of, of uh, their IT uh, security infrastructure, um, assessing their physical layout, and really analyzing evidence. I uh, did that for almost two years, and then the spanning job just kind of fell in my lap. I actually found out, found out about it through a happy hour. <laughs> ah, perfect. So, yeah, it was great. And, uh, and actually, I, I'm not, you know, saying this you know, with a big head, but I really love this job. I mean, it's, it's probably the best job I've ever had. So it's really interesting. The people, the culture, everything here is great. It's That's okay. Cool. That's not big. I love, by uh, the way. <laughs> that is not, I'm, no, I'm pretty sure Brett and I would yell. got a great place to work. Yeah. Not only would Brett and I stop, stomp on each other's words. I think we would both yell from the top of the mountaintops that we both love our jobs. So that is the sign of awesome. uh, not only a great organization, but also, you know, a person who is in the right position. That's really, really simple. And by the way, Everybody listening, all seven of you, you all should feel the same way about your jobs that Brian does about his. <laughs> Everybody well, should. Two of, they really should. Two of them are our mother, so the other five. Yeah, it's, we have the same mom. But they, you know they love us dearly. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think oh, it's a great yes. – so, um, so thanks for that. It, it's, it's great to see military guys. I'm an I'm a Army veteran myself. So I went on and did a, a business as well and then moved into the tech world. So it's great to see. I've got lots of friends doing the exact same thing. So it's, uh, it's pretty neat to see. So um, did you have an interest uh, at all in, in technology growing up or was just kind of like a, something that happened after the Navy got you inspired? Well, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I, ironically, I'm not a big gamer. I mean, I did back in my younger days i loved atari which not really cool now but you know it was back then um but these days i'm not a huge gamer but i've but over the years i've always been interested in technology i've always been interested in computers um i'm always interested in how people circumvent um things you know protection on computers and things like that so i guess it was always just kind of a natural uh move into this this position in this industry for me um I've, I did. I've, I did have a business dabbling, obviously, in school for a little while. But um, I think 
it was just kind of a, a stepping stone into a, a greater educational sphere for me. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, look, you're, you're a security guy. You're also, um, I wouldn't say all over, but you're certainly on social media. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your, your thoughts on that, right? There's, I just read an article today about uh, Facebook just kind of struggling to keep up with the security threats uh, going on. Um, that's just one avenue of it. But um, as a security-minded guy, how do you go about day-to-day with social media? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely on social media. Um, I think over the years, and like some people may be doing more of this now, I, I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm sharing less and less on social media. I'm doing more evangelizing on social media than anything. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the, you know, the millennial and cur- more current generations and how they're sharing themselves, <laughs> to put it lightly, and their information. Because everything is on the internet now. Everybody's interconnected in a way that when I was growing up, we just didn't have that problem. And so... I feel like we should we should definitely um, be concerned uh, at parents of of kids today, and even those parents who maybe aren't as savvy with 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 social media, they just need to be careful about what they're sharing because people are always looking for information. And I think when they when they find certain tidbits of information that leads them into figuring out passwords, um, ways to you know, talk to them on the phone to make something sound legitimate. So it all ties back to this whole social engineering thing. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that it really, it brings it all together and, and people just need to be more careful is really where I feel like it should be. Yeah, absolutely. That whole social engineering, the more you share, the easier it is to kind of build that profile and, and how to interact with you. Totally. Yeah. And that's why everybody knows that all of my passwords are food related. It's because of my, it's because of my internet presence. So, uh, you know, as we, as we talk about this and, you know, social engineering, security awareness, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's obviously a part of that becomes things like targeted attacks. Um, and so as you know, who your, who your target is, um, now they get into the point where they can be very pointed at who they want to, um, you know, who they want to attack, right? They have certain vectors and certain ways that they can speak with them where you get into things like um, ransomware. Um, and so, you know, there's obviously a lot of key stories out there around social engineering and, and ransomware. I don't know where we want to start. I mean, like, you know, if we look at social engineering, right, there was a $81 million heist at Bangladesh's central bank, and they uh, basically stole some mm-hmm. of their credentials. And that was literally, they found the right person, sent them the right email, and, you know, on they were into to their environment. So, you know, when you see things like that, how are you, um, how are you trying to show people uh, and what do you think are the steps that people need to take to be able to start to, you know, kind of avoid this from, a, from a, a, an organization wide? Is it all internal security policy or is it education? Like which one's actually the better defense or is it a, a layered defense? I think, I think it's a layered defense. Defense in depth, that's my, one of my favorite phrases from CISSP. Um, I think that uh, education is probably number one. Um, I also think that you can have some technical tools. I know that uh, at least, you know, we're a G Suite office, and I know that Google's really stepped up their game with their artificial intelligence for trying to um, keep an eye out for things coming through their filtered email. But at the same time, I feel like 
showing people real world examples. I mean, I've seen uh, phishing uh, attempts at, at, at here at Spanning, and I've got great uh, evidence of that that I can share with my users and and make sure that they understand what not to do. And I and one thing that I've that I've really enjoyed here is getting people so aware that they're always contacting me. What about this? Does this look okay to you? And uh, if, if that, in my opinion, that's 50% of the battle. If I can get these people to just stop before they click or ask a question, pick up the phone and call someone who sent them that email, is this legitimate? You know, those are not bad questions to ask anymore. I mean, maybe five, 10 years ago, having that conversation with someone who sent you something might have been, eh, I don't know if I should ask that. It seems kind of rude. Now everybody's going to do it. Everybody's on their game and everybody's worried about it. So I think education is primary, paramount. And as you look at, you know, as, as you get through social engineering, obviously before we were coming in, trying to get a, you know access to the network, maybe we're grabbing a pile of information, we're taking it off of the network and then doing something like possibly trying to decrypt it, you know, get information, user passwords, whatever it may be. However, that's becoming more and more difficult, and there's different layers of, uh, obviously, nation states are really good at it, and then there's people who are just like, hey, I just really want to get some quick money out of this. I need 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand. And so social engineering has shifted from stealing the information and trying to crack it to simply locking it all down. And this is where we get into things like ransomware, right? And so like mm-hmm. the, the, the statistics on who's been hit by ransomware, in some cases, is like 50%. Uh, you know, that's hard to believe. That's almost shocking that that's a lot of business impact. Um, but like there's like 4,000 ransomware attacks since January 2016. Where does where does cloud? First of all, what's your position on kind of the ransomware story? But also where does cloud fit in from a business strategy perspective on things like ransomware? Well, ransomware, like you said, is is gotten pretty much out of control. Um, I feel like uh it seems like there's a new variant that comes out every month or couple of months. Uh, we even see some resurgence. I mean, I just saw a headline the other day that there's a resurgence of the Lockheed ransomware. That's uh, a new strain of that has come back out. Um, the beauty of cloud for me, at least uh, in my line of work, is the separation, right? So uh, I think in an on-prem, you know, um, old you know, traditional type of, of model, you have users and servers on-prem and and uh, if someone, you know, gets hit by ransomware, it's, you know, it can propagate through their either their local machine or their shared uh, uh, files or whatever on, on the network. But the beauty of, um, of uh, cloud, at least for now, until it, you know, makes more of an impact, is that ransomware can somewhat be stopped at the local level, uh, instead of you know propagating back up into your cloud storage, um, it's still possible, but um, it's it's harder. And then if you know, and of course I'm plugging something here, but my company. But if you have a you know a cloud backup solution that is even separated from that, um, if you, you lose your files to an, you know a, a ransomware encryption, and you have that backup stored elsewhere uh you're not beholden to the criminal (laughs) you might have a a few hours of downtime versus permanent downtime or even you know loss of your business in in totality so uh, i feel like uh 
with respect to ransomware, a good backup solution is is absolutely key and number one on you know I, I think it ranks up there quite closely with education for the number one position for combating ransomware. So uh, in in doing some research about you and the company, um, you wrote a white paper called "Preventing a Ransomware Disaster." I wanted to read it, but I had to register for it, so I uh, I just took the cliff notes from the beginning. But you wrote that, and mm-hmm. tell us about your your thoughts uh, from that white paper and the and the things that you can you can do to help mitigate this risk, uh, and you know this 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 disaster that can can happen and propagate. Well. Uh, I've, I've sort of highlighted it a little bit already, but um, basically, number one was have a good backup. Uh, I think that can't be stressed enough now. And, and the funny thing is, is I feel like that's in, in a lot of the you know, uh, security conventions that I've been to recently. I think everybody's on, on top of that and on agree, in agreement with that. Um, as I stated before, education of your users is, is also the primary goal here, too. Uh, there's, there's really... Um, no way to stop it from coming into your environment, but uh, I think that education is the key. Is the key there? Uh, just getting people not to click on things, not to uh, just f- sit blindly and assume that everything that gets sent to them is is easy. And and also, I would say just making sure that. Uh, Maybe don't keep things locally uh, that are important things um, locally on on your computer if you can help it. Uh, you know, keep them in a uh, a cloud storage area that's separated so that there's more of an air gap separation there that you don't have to um, uh, worry about something physically in your control getting getting uh, getting encrypted. So. Um, I was reading, I think it was uh, the Department of Justice, one of their white papers, it was for CISOs and CIOs, and it was like, what to do uh, if you get hit, right, with ransomware. And Mm -hmm. there were some some kind of techniques and, you know, basically segregate yourself from the network. Uh, But what are some other steps? If someone does get hit and they get this pop-up, it's like, hey, you're locked down, uh, you owe us this much money. What what would you tell our listeners to do at that point or organizations? First of all, yeah. First of all, I would say do not pay. <laughs> Don't pay. Um, definitely disconnect your computer. Contact your authorities, and I would, I would probably not turn it off because there's going to have to be some sort of forensic investigation. I would say just disconnect from the network and leave it as is. Don't mess with it. Don't log off. Don't turn it off, and you know definitely contact the authorities and let someone, a professional, come in. And uh, take an image of that machine, uh, you know, dump the memory so that they can analyze it. Uh, I, that's the, the first, uh, people's general, you know, um, first thought is, oh my God, something's happened. I just need to stop what I'm doing and shut it down. That'll make it go away. And uh, <laughs> you really don't want to destroy evidence. Evidence is the key here. <laughs> so I would definitely, but don't pay. I mean, every. I definitely wouldn't do that because that propagates, you know, the concept of ransomware and it, it propagates, you know, these, these actors to keep doing what they're doing because it obviously works. Right. So, um, that's my first and foremost thought. 
Yeah, and so right you, you mentioned air gapping, and let's you know I'm going to go a little bit. I'm I'm wandering off the reservation. We didn't really talk about this ahead of time. Um, you know, there you you can use cloud as a information base air gap, right? In other words, it's not yours; mm-hmm. it's someone else. There's a different vector by which they have to attack it. Um, similarly, when you look on prem, there are a lot of vendors, especially in the storage area that are also um, promoting architectures that are also air-gapped, where the gap is actually the replication mechanism at sub-level of the storage, right? So the attack vector is very difficult, and obviously the, the transport layer, you know, somebody can't traverse those two networks using traditional IP protocols, right? So, um, mm-hmm. what you know, in your opinion, as a CISSP and somebody who's kind of seen this, you know, when you look at defense in depth, what does storage air gap and cloud air gap look like to you? Is that a is that an, are both of those effective mechanisms, or do you see that as just part of the total strategy? And you know, what do you think of that kind of storage air gap story? If you haven't heard it before, I mean, this may be news to you. No, I mean, I've I've lightly touched on it briefly, um, in the, you know, previously. I what I would say about the storage air gap um, is that nothing is a hundred percent. So I still think that you could. St- you know, still have a vulnerability from a human perspective in there. Um, someone who has access to that physical hardware or, or something like that uh, may cause some some kind of vulnerability there as well. But um, I don't know. I I think any type of physical separation or storage separation like that is is definitely. Uh, one thing to add to the defense in depth layer of security in an organization. Yeah. I personally just think we all just need more air gaps in our lives, you know, like, uh, (laughs) you know, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how I can implement that in other places. So, you know, moving on from, from that and kind of ransomware and things like that, the other fun thing in the security world um, right now, like everybody seems to be talking about it. It's really from more of a compliance and regulation perspective. You know, we've seen all these like, Five, you know, three and four and five letter acronym uh, regulations, right? So PCI, you know, HIPAA, all these kind of things. Well, coming down the pipe faster than anybody can possibly stop it is GDPR, right? So it's huge. There's a lot of, there's going to be a, ma- I mean, like, I feel like GDPR is going to have a massive impact on a lot of people just trying to figure out how to implement the expected regulations. So, you know, what do you know about GDPR? And, you know, kind of give me the, Give me the you know ten thousand foot view of GDPR in your opinion. I know way more about GDPR than I really ever wanted to know, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, GDPR is a global data protection regulation, and it's obviously uh, instigated by the European Union to give individuals more control over their privacy rights and their data in you know in totality um it comprises a huge list of articles um most popular is probably the right to be forgotten stems from a google case a few years back um that's kind of where it got its start and it's it, yeah, like you said, it's it's coming up fast in May of 2018, and that's when enforcement's going to start happening. And it's scaring the heck out of a lot of people, especially you know, especially U.S. businesses, because we don't we don't take privacy as seriously as the as the European Union. So it's very interesting. And, and so, so, Brian, the, yeah, go, uh, go, Brent. Fine. Yeah, there's two Brian. Sorry about that, Brian <laughs> Rutledge. <laughs> um, 
you know, you talked about the the right to be forgotten and stemming from a Google case a few years back. Was that the catalyst for GDPR or was there something else going on kind of, I don't know, in the industry or somewhere else that that really made this happen? I think that was probably the public catalyst for it. Um, but the EU, to be honest, I mean, it's pretty amazing with them over there. Uh, they've They've actually cared more about s- s- privacy and um, being able to manipulate your data and do things with your own data for a long time. They've uh, I can't remember the exact regulation um, for the current regulation that's out there, but they already have a data protection regulation over there that is very similar to this. But the difference is with the, that and the GDPR, or there's more enforcement uh, penalties now. Um, it extends to processors more now than it ever had before. So it's it's definitely um, something that's changing uh, the way the entire world sees this, uh, because people just you know the internet was built as an open system, and so it's really hard to close the door after the horse is already out of the barn, you know, so, but they're trying. Yeah. So uh, reading through some of your blogs about it, um, you know, I got a sense that this is a, this is a big thing, uh, clearly. And there's a lot of, a lot of nuance to it. And since there's no, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, legal precedents out there today, it's making it difficult for organizations to, really wrap their head around it and how they're supposed to follow the letter of this GDPR thing uh, and, and and make it reasonable, right? So talk to us about, you know, what what your thoughts are on how organizations should approach this and, and, and how they can, you know, be compliant, but not go insanely crazy of trying to, uh, trying to, trying to comply. Yeah, that's, that's my huge, uh, that's my huge, uh, push right now is to try to figure out how to comply without going too far. And I've had some uh, legal counsel discussions where we've talked about this. And because there's no legal precedent, because there's never been a violation or you know a complaint levied uh, in this uh, realm yet for this kind of a regulation, nobody knows what to do. And so I would say start early. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, we're also uh, spanning. Uh, we're trying to become a, a thought leader on this because we want to show people that you know we're going to be compliant. There's no question about that. We definitely will be. But at the same time, we need to understand how far we need to go. How how deep uh, does the data subjects um, rights? I hate to put it in so bluntly, but how how deep do their rights go? Do do the the company they work for does that have some legal precedent over, you know, from a intellectual property perspective? Um, where where do you, where do your individual rights and the company you work for's rights begin and end? So that's the kind of things that we're trying to figure out right now and trying to navigate through. And it's uh, you know that's that's fun by the way. I don't know your opinion. I mean, as somebody who's kind of done. Uh, compliance for a long time. One of the difficulties with compliance from my personal point of view is it's much more of a guideline than a rule. In other words, the the statements are often uh, generic enough to have different levels of interpretation based on 
your emphasis, your thought patterns, things like that, which was why, you know, frankly, uh, example, case examples are the way to help people kind of hone in those guidelines into something that looks more like a rule and a standard. Uh, is that the same with GDPR? Is it, as, is it as wide for interpretation as some of the other, you know, SOX and PCI type standards out there? Or is it, um, or is it much more regulatory and specific? Uh, I would say that at this point, I think it's very wide open for interpretation. I'm hoping that the EU comes out with some more prescriptive regula regulatory um, uh, templates or something like that. Uh, when I was a PCI assessor, you know, the PCI council is uh, very, very good at being nebulous but specific at the same time right so there was some things like uh, you need to have vulnerability scans once every quarter and they need to be passing right so i mean those are the prescriptive things but when it comes to how you implement your scanning methodology well that's pretty much up to the company and then you have the assessor who comes in and they can kind of you know, agree or disagree, and they can talk about it and figure out how to do it. I think that's the way the GDPR is going to ultimately be. I think it's going to be one of those things where we have this list of articles, and they're pretty good if, if you read these articles. They're very, very detailed, but at the same time, they don't go into uh, how deep it goes or where their rights end. I mean, they may they basically say they have all these right. You know, they have this huge list of rights and and things they can do with their data. But what they don't do is say, well, what if that data is shared data? What if that data is actually got intellectual property from the company they work for? Do they actually have the right to quote unquote be forgotten? So um, I think those are the legal questions we're going to have to navigate through. And with this, with the with the penalties that that are thrown out there with, you know, 4% of your gross annual sales versus or 20 billion, you know, 20 million or 20 billion, 20 million euros, uh, 20 million euros, uh, whichever's higher, <laughs> that's scaring the heck out of people. So we want to get this right. And, and, you know, so we talked about this being a European Union thing, but clearly it's affecting companies uh, all over the world, right? So what are the kind of uh, the gates that would say, hey, I'm a company, and I should be considering GDPR uh, guidelines. Well, uh, they're pretty clear about that, actually, on one thing for for sure. Uh, you anything that has anything to do with anybody that is either residing in the European Union, so you you don't even necessarily have to be a European Union citizen if you live there, you're covered. Also, if you're a European Union citizen and you don't live there, so you could live in the United States but still have citizenship from you know England or France or something like that, you're covered. So that's the one thing that companies like us and everybody else need to do is this huge data mapping exercise to figure out where it's all coming from because you'd be surprised that you know if you're gathering personal information. Um, it may be easier if you, you know, are just doing some minute marketing campaigns or something like that, where um, you can easily, you know, remove finite amounts of data. But the problem with this is, is that they're even going so far as to say that, you know, IP addresses and cookies and things like that are co considered personal data. So you've really got to wow. do an in-depth. Uh, assessment of where people's information is coming from. I almost think it's impossible to not be uh, 
affected by this, no matter who you are, because unless you're a plumber in the United States and you just don't take any data in and you just <laughs> deal with people on a personal level. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's actually where my position stands on GDPR is for, if I was to give anybody guidance, if they do anything that is IP related, not intellectual property, but data, you know, traffic related, you are under GDPR simply because you have no, you probably don't have the resources to classify yes and no. And in that case, the, the safest way to do it is to classify always yes, right? And so um, mm -hmm. what that essentially becomes is GDPR now applies to everybody if you do business on or with or about the internet or any sort of thing there, there with. So, it, you know, that, that's huge. Uh, and the question then becomes, can people, will people comply and can they afford to comply? And where does the, you know, where does, where does the European Union, I guess, or whoever's the enforcing body for GDPR, where do they start the enforcement? Do they start at the big side or do they start it with small people? You know, where do they start to do that kind of stuff? That That's funny you say that because I'm an, I'm of the frame of thought that they, they may go big and make an example of somebody right out of the gate just to show they're serious. Um, I'm not sure, but with regard to the costs uh, involved, not only are those enforcement uh, penalties there, but you know, a lot of companies are going to have to come up with a data privacy officer, right, or data protection officer, whatever you want to call them, and or DPO, and that's going to, you know, in, incur some either some full time. Uh, employee costs or uh, they're going to have to pay for some consulting firm to offer that as a service and anytime you're you know you're you're doing any you know uh, marketing analysis where you're uh, advertising based off of uh, data that you've uh, mined from um, from in incoming information or if you're processing certain very sensitive types of of data, then you have to have a DPO hired or retained. And that's another cost that people, especially for a small company, I mean, for a Verizon or, or an AT&T or someone like that, I mean, they'd probably be able to, they probably already have someone on staff for that. But, but for smaller companies, it's, it's, that's a big expense to have another whole person or consulting firm represent them. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, you literally hit my, my biggest my like my mind equals blown uh, world around this data privacy thing, which is before, and I'd you know it's there's the shift isn't like just the second, but before most of information security was keep the information where it is and protect it from somebody taking it out of that location, essentially, right? Like no, a bad mm -hmm. actor cannot come in, take the information, and leave with it. Is the general thought press thought process around information. The new thought processes continue to do that, plus protect how the data is used. In other words, if I gave you my email address so that you can send me my order information, that does not give you the right to use my email address to send me marketing information. Um, and you know things like that are kind of, and also you know who can you share that with? Who can access it? How you know can I get you to delete it? All of these things. So it used to be keep it in state and protect it. Now it's keep it in state and also manage how it gets used. Do you feel, I talked for a long time, you're the expert. How do you feel about that kind of thought process and the shift there? You mean uh, keeping things inside the company and? It's kind of like, you know, basically information theft versus now, 
the real issue is the business has to watch how the information is used, right? They have a they have a new level of compliance, which is not only keep it safe, but also manage how it gets used. And each use case is very specific. Yeah, I, I feel like you know it's definitely the onus has has been shifted back over to the business more than ever before. And 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 again, I feel like it's I don't, I don't know if it's fair or not fair, but. Uh, I feel like there's there's definitely a shift in, in how people uh, manage data, how uh, we're being forced to care about other people's data more than we ever have in the past. And so it's very interesting, for sure. So, Brian Rutledge, uh, you, you brought up the right to be forgotten earlier. And so I read a quick blurb on this earlier, um, and I thought it was pretty interesting. So can you explain what that means and the the implications of that for for users or, or for people's data well uh I, again i think we're going to have an interpretation war going on here with that with not just me but other people but uh you know if you were to take it on face value what it means is if a data subject comes along and says hey uh i'm i don't want uh my data to be in your uh, system, your databases on anything that uh, deals with your company anymore. And so the question about that is, is how far do you go, right? I mean, is this something that um, as, a, as, a, as a company, you could be a controller and a processor, right? So you're either a controller where you take in personal data, like from a marketing perspective, or you're a processor like spanning and you process on behalf of other customers data that contains their company's data subject information. So um, I feel like nobody, again, nobody really knows what exactly it means to be forgotten. Does that mean we delete your email inbox and everything in email? Uh, or does that mean that every email that person ever sent to every other person, we have to somehow surgically go in and erase their little name out of the email address list or get rid of their anything that could be identifying to them out of the actual email itself? I mean, I think personally, I think there's some legal ramifications with that because now you're infringing on the data rights, privacy rights of someone else and the company itself. So, I mean, I think the company also has some rights here, not, you know, infinite rights, but I feel like they have some intellectual property rights. Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing some uh, <clears throat> some interesting uh, end-user license agreements and uh, click here if you agree type stuff that is consent going to, huge. yeah, consent. Yeah. Because if you give it up once, um, and knowing whether you read it or not, uh, that it's going to be used somewhere else, um, and you can't get it back, even if you're trying to do this right to be forgotten, like you're kind of SOL. Well, but that also, that's the interesting thing, right, is if the way I read the regulation is that even if you give consent, they can still take that consent back. So, um, they've really gone way farther down the road um, for data subject rights uh, in this case. And I somewhat agree with that. Um, I feel like I wish the United States would do that a little, little, a little better job of that too. But at the same time, I just, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to go completely 
removing someone from existence. I just don't think it's possible, honestly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a simple logical interpretation of this. I mean, one of the benefits just in the United States alone, uh, let's go for example, I mean, Brian, since you're in Texas with me, Brent, you may know it. Some everybody else may not know it, but Sonic, you know, their expertise, their core competency is fantastic tater tots. Now I know you're all hungry and hamburgers mm. and thing, and hot dogs and stuff like that. Okay. Sonic had a breach. And that breach was of their payment card system. And as a result, they lost hundreds of thousands of credit cards. Now, my question is, why the hell is Sonic storing credit cards? You, like, your core competency is tater tots and hamburgers. Get those out the door. Your core competency is not storing well, my credit card information. And there's no reason in the payment card industry for you to have to store that. You're not even allowed to store. You're barely allowed to store tokenization of the credit card. But the fact of the matter is they weren't. And so they're breaking every PCI that ever existed as far as I know. And on top of that, why would they even bother? So somebody somewhere thought this is a good idea. In return, all the risk got put on me and their consumers. And it's not even a benefit to their business and they're not good at it. So if anything, like you could tell it pisses me off because I like my tater tots, but now I'm mad at them. <laughs> Um, well, but, and, and, that, yeah. and that's what I used to recommend to my customers, all and my clients at my previous job all the time was if you don't need to retain that data, get it out, get a tokenization system, get, you know, work with Stripe or someone like that where the, the entire payment process is outside of out of scope of your entire system. It, there's it's abs, absolutely stupid to keep that data on site. It's just a breach waiting to happen. Yeah, so to punish them, I didn't go get tater tots for two weeks. Um, oh. But you know, like you know, I I would uh, you know, like I believe that the the spillover effect of GDPR is that at a minimum, organizations that are currently not looking at their information properly may do a double take and start doing that whole like uh, as a cor as a corporation, the best thing you possibly do is not my problem and throw your hands up, right? Like if, so why would you want to be that close to something that risky for your business? Clearly they didn't care. They thought they could make some money off of it and, and do something. They thought they were smart. And in return, all they did was get everybody else's information stolen. So that's, that's the best benefit to me, even though it's nebulous, even though it's gonna be really difficult. Uh, frankly, please forget my credit card number, please. For like the next yeah. website that ever asks me to save my credit card number, please never do it again. Just that's that's even that alone would be massive impact to the rest of the the world, right? Like so. Well, and that's why that's why I think that the EU might make an example of somebody pretty quick, yeah. because no one's going to take it seriously till someone sees that there's real money being lost because of it. Well, there's 215 days uh, as of today until GDPR goes into effect. How long has this been uh, a known quantity? Um, and how long have people had to prepare for it? Uh, it went into effect. Oh my gosh. Um, well, I think they, it went into the, the year to go effect, uh, mid March or April of last year. So, and of course I got hired on here in April and I immediately started getting questions from new clients, which, um, really just really started pushing me to make it, a uh, you know a a number one project for me uh, here at Spanning and and I I just think that um, you know we're not we don't have enough we just don't have enough time I I, I think 215 days is just gonna fly by at this point it's just not 
everybody everybody's just waiting to see there's a lot of companies out there just waiting to see oh what you know what's going to happen or what are the Verizon's going to do of this and those are the companies with a lot of resources we need to be thinking about this from a small business and smaller company perspective and what it in, what it doesn't mean how do we comply even if there's maybe not necessarily a technical solution is there a procedural solution we can do to comply and so uh, I, you know, I'm curious, hopefully you can answer. And, uh, you know, I understand security and privacy is very important to you. Is there a, is there a fundamental impact on the way spanning architected their environment that has changed as a result of GDPR? Can you kind of describe that, you know, from either development or a feature or something you've already implemented to help, you know, help move towards being compliant? Well, um, what I would say with that is, you know, we are a backup solution. So that's kind of our, you know, our value prop is backing up everything. So um, I think from a structural and architectural perspective, you know, we, we uh, encrypt in transit. We encrypt at rest. Um, there is this uh, data uh anonymization, I think I got that right, uh, concept out there. Um, you can go further with encryption and make it um, completely somewhat anonymous. Um, I don't. We haven't re-architected anything uh, with respect to GDPR because I really don't feel like we have to. Um, I think it's going to boil down to uh, processes and procedures for us more than necessarily a technical solution, although there may be something in the works for that. I'm not sure yet. Okay. And so the other part of this is, you know, spanning is an agile organization, you know, you're quite, you know, obviously, you know, born in and of the cloud. And so you've got all these benefits of being, you know, agile and doing the DevOps and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen, you know, I've seen your team meetings, I've seen your standups, you know, obviously I've seen your walls and your scrum boards and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so my question is, you know, where does, you know, part of the story of DevOps is everybody at the table together, you know, deciding on how a feature is implemented, how a function is going to be done, you know, how we can do this successfully so that, you know, as security is brought back at the end of the, you know, at the end of the story, all of a sudden there's a huge impact financially and timeline wise. So where is spanning using security as part of their DevOps process? You know, can you kind of explain that and even your own personal relationship yeah. to the development environment? Oh, yeah. Um, I would say there's – I have a personal relationship with it because I'm always communicating with our engineering team, our DevOps team, uh, all the way up to the CEO and uh, SVP of operations about – uh, what we need to do and and how we need to integrate it from uh, uh, des you know designing for privacy, designing with a security posture in mind. Uh, we're definitely uh, a, a company that cares about the security um, in every aspect, from initial development to testing to uh, pushing into production. Um, there's always uh, a focus. Uh, from a security perspective and, and how we can uh, integrate that into, you know, a good customer experience so that they feel uh, confident and secure that their data is taken care of and, and, and well cared for. Awesome. Well, you know, we, uh, my other questions for you, I, you know, I love to hear all of the security stuff, you know, as you, as you went down the path of going to pick something like there's probably somebody out there right now is thinking, 
man, you know, that GDPR thing, that's some sexy stuff. And they want to get more involved and they want to be further educated. Um, as a security person, somebody with a CISSP, I mean, you've got 40 hours a year just of continuing education that you have to do, um, which is the most painful thing in the world to document. Um, but, uh, you know, as you keep, keep yourself educated, what are you doing to keep fresh, to keep, you know, relevant? Um, you know, security slightly sometimes may be considered to be boring, um, but, you know, there's still a lot of really cool things inside. What are you doing to keep educated and fresh and kind of in front of the wave of security? I'm talking to people. I'm talking to Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, which is our primary uh, application, SaaS applications that we back up. I'm talking to those people. I'm going to the ISC Squared Security Congress that down the, that happened here in Austin a couple of weeks ago. I'm I'm interfacing, especially for GDPR. I'm interfacing with Europeans themselves. I want to know what these people think. I want to know what the security leaders in the EU are thinking, how they feel. You know, I'm talking, and actually, I just got off a call yesterday with one of our clients in the EU uh, trying to understand uh, for them, because they're the data controller in this transaction, I'm trying to figure out how they're going to comply. Because if I can figure out a good way that they're going to comply, it's going to help drive my. Uh, you know, my solution. So I, I think communicating with people, I mean, I can sit and read articles all day or I can go look at, um, you know, uh, books all day long if I want to. But I think talking to people in the real world is what really helps me every day. Well, Brian, thanks, man, for being on today. We're, we're running out of time. So uh, kind of the, the Closing things down, is there anything that we missed that's top of mind and, and, and hyper-relevant for you and specifically around uh, uh, spanning? Um, well, spanning is always uh, creating uh, new and better features for our products. Um, I feel like you know we're definitely um, the number one uh, backup solution out there. Uh, we really, I think we're simple, we're easy, and um, I feel like as, as I stated before, that backup is the key to uh, ransomware um, defense and anything else with respect to uh, keeping your data safe. Cool. So, Brian, when, uh, when and where can we find you next? Uh, you, sign, you, you said you're, you're, you're doing evangelism. So are there any events coming up that you'll be presenting at? Or, or where can we, we uh, tap you on the shoulder and grab you a beer? Uh, I'm always in Austin. I, I live downtown, so you can always come to Austin and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to have a beer. Uh, I don't have anything, um, coming up right away. Like I said, I just went to the IC squared security Congress. So that was an amazing, uh, three days of, of, of interfacing with really cool people. Um, but yeah. Okay. Right on. And then, uh, social media, we talked about it earlier, but where can we find you online and interact with you? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. Um, uh, Brian D. Rutledge on Twitter. And uh, on Instagram, it's uh, <laughs> Scarab Beetle. <laughs> yeah, what is Scarab Beetle? Oh, uh, it's this, I, I don't know. I've always had a thing for Egyptian mythology and stuff like that. So I was just trying to put two words together and make Scarab and Beetle kind of mesh together. All right, right so on. So does that and mean your cool. favorite so, movie is like The Mummy, or like have you seen all the mummies and you have them memorized? Or 
I I liked the first one. The second one was okay, and the third one I hated. But yeah, I kind of like dorky, silly movies like that. But I'm more of a Matrix kind of guy. I'm I'm, I'm the, that's the kind of movie I like. Right on. And for uh, we always love to ask our guests this, but what, what are you reading right now? Whether it's to do with the uh, with security or your your business or your job or just personal life. Yeah, um, one book I just recently read and I really loved was Lights Out um, by uh, the former anchor man for Nightline, Ted Koppel. It's uh, it's a book uh, called Lights Out, a cyber attack, a nation unprepared, surviving the aftermath. He really goes in depth about talking about um, our electrical grid and how vulnerable it is to you know uh, nation state actors who are probably already inside, and that scared me a little bit but i'm confident hopefully that with uh more and more people becoming aware that may not necessarily if we could maybe you know a little bit in much better shape right on well brian thank you again for being on the hot aisle today with that we're going to shut it down but for those of you listening out there today get social with us let us know what you thought about the podcast and let us know what you want to hear next uh, we're always uh getting good content from the field out there so with that We're done for today. My name is Brent Piotti. With me, Brian Carpenter. And Mr. Brian Rutledge, thanks for being on today. Hey, thanks, guys. It was great.